Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Johnny Jemison is a comic artist and graphic novelist. Rabbit Room Press is reissuing a color edition of Martin and Marco, the first of five graphic novels in Johnny's Dragon Lord saga. Book two, The River Fox, is soon to follow. Johnny sat down with me to talk about visual storytelling, finding his authentic voice, and board games. Johnny Jemison, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited about um, about the fact that your the full color version of Martin and Marco is coming out um, in October. I guess this will be airing in October, right about the time that that, that book comes out from Rabbit Room Press. Yes. So excellent. I'm so excited that we not just that it's my book, but that the Rabbit Room Press is releasing a comic. <laughs> yeah. Something kind of great about that. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, in, in an, I was looking at an old uh, Rabbit Room uh, interview. Actually, it wasn't an interview. It was just a, a piece you wrote uh, that I thought was really interesting. I thought it might be a good place for us to start talking about your work as a writer, not just as a, as a, a writer of comics and a writer of graphic novels, um, but in just the way that your voice as, a, as an artist developed. Uh, you, you reproduced you, or you copied or, you know, uh, Something you had written a few years ago. I assume you were pretty young, because uh, well, you're still pretty young. But but the uh, something that sounded pretty, you know, as if you had probably just finished reading the Silmarillion and wanted to try your hand at it. <laughs> you know? For sure. And it was kind of a it, yeah. It was kind of a mess. Yeah. The it, I can track uh, the Dragon Lord saga back to a very specific moment in time, and that was. In 2001, when the Fellowship of the Ring movie had come out, yeah, and I was obsessively watching it, and the you, you know that experience where you're trying to read through a book series or watch through a TV show, and you get sidetracked, and then when you get back around to it, you're like, I should probably just start from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I do that with uh, Tolkien's writing quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I always have to read The Silmarillion and then The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. Oh wow! And okay. because I get sidetracked. And the Silmarillion is the book I read the most. Uh huh. Yeah. But it's uh, because it was published posthumously. Uh, it's the most unfiltered of Tolkien's stories. Uh-huh. So, where he he fed his imagination with old English epics and Norse mythology, and so that comes out in the writing of the Silmarillion, not just in the high fantasy, but also in this very uh, like regal old timey language. Yeah. Right. And um, yeah. And, and and I mean, this is what I was feeding my imagination uh-huh. at the time. So um, I mean, the the reason I tell stories at all is because I'm there are questions that I'm wrestling with. Uh-huh. So like Martin, one of my characters is Martin, and then uh, his little brother Marco is the other main character, and they're each kind of a part of me. Uh-huh. And they disagree all the time because there are a lot of things that. I have trouble sorting out yeah, right. in my own mind. Yeah. And um, the stories just come from me putting that in a in the context of this fantasy story because it helps me parse out these things more easily. Mm-hmm. But because I'd been in this, like my mind had been in Middle Earth 
mode. So that's how the story came out. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, as I said, it, it was it was a little bit of a mess. The the part that you that you shared on on the, on the rabbit room, um, and how did you get from this overblown, um, uh, very derivative kind of storytelling to to what you have ended up doing instead? Well, I picked up the story and put it down. Uh, at various points over the years and it took different shapes and different forms, but it never really clicked until I stopped trying to do it with prose and started trying to do it with comics, Mm -hmm. which was, I I got really serious about uh, pursuing comics. I think around 2010 or so. Okay. And, uh, so it, it was just the, the latest, um, thing that I was trying with this fantasy story, just playing around with it. But something about, that language of visual storytelling, I think, clicks a lot more for me than other forms of media. Yeah. And it kind of loosened me up to let these uh, other influences kind of seep into the story and let me, it, it kind of let the pretensions drop. And mm-hmm. I was able to just kind of let the story be what it was trying to be rather than trying to create the Silmarillion 2. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so be, that's a um the, there's there's nothing pretentious about what you what you're doing now right the the dragon right. saga um there's something you just said that I thought was interesting you said to let other I don't know if you said other influences seep in um mm-hmm. tell me about that what what did you mean uh well there's in the original version it was uh I was being a Tolkien mimic yeah, uh, and just trying to redo what had been done before, which is not a bad place to start, but right. I think, um, you, you know, when I'm talking to other visual artists, I talk a lot about visual vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So like, um, looking at taking a close look at a tree and then taking a far off look at a tree to try to get a feel of like, what is the tree shaped like? What does it look like up close? And then looking at the way different artists draw trees uh, from fine artists to more minimal artists and uh, just um, along the way, picking up different, different ways of depicting trees so that when it's time for me to draw a tree, I don't have to obsess over how it's done. There's just, I can see little influences from, that I've taken from various places, finding their way into the work. So, um, as I've worked on the Dragon Lord saga as a comic series, I've been kind of surprised sometimes at the the influences that have just found their way into my work. I can I can look at uh, certain pages uh, in the book now and see, um, you know, I'll, I'll look at a page and say, oh, this is where I was reading that one comic because. <laughs> Um, this artist drew this thing this way, and it kind of found its way into my work. And ever since then, I've been drawing that detail in this way. Interesting. You know, it's it's uh, when you one thing that I thought about as you were talking about that was the idea that um, on the one hand, um, as you allow these influences to make their way into your work, um, in, in one sense that that feels unoriginal because. You're being influenced, but that combination, mm-hmm. the, your particular combination of influences, is unique to you. 
And so as right. you as those come back out, you know, talking talking about the leaf mold of the mind, you know, all these influences come in and they decompose into something that doesn't look like leaves anymore, but suddenly it's it's this very fertile thing that, that creativity can grow out of um, that is unique. And, um, you know, as, as we strain for uniqueness, that doesn't work all that well. Uh, or when we strain for originality, that's a hard thing uh-huh. to do. Um, right. And yet when I look at, at your work, it feels original to me, even though you can look at it and go, I see, I got that idea from this and I got that idea from that. But, right. But to the reader, it feels original. And, and by the way, whoever influenced you, they were influenced by somebody else, too. They, you know, they probably mm-hmm. didn't think of themselves as being especially original. Right. Yeah, that's uh, – I've had um, artists ask me how to develop a style. Cause they, I've had artists say that they see a style in my work, which – like you said, I don't see that from the inside, but right. they see something unique from the outside, and they'll ask, how do I develop my own unique style? And I'll usually tell them to just keep making keep making the comics, and mm-hmm. the style will emerge. It'll actually emerge quicker if you're not consciously trying to create a style. That's probably not strictly true, but it's definitely been the case for me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. Can you so? Can you say a little something else about the idea of uh, verbal? I'm not verbal. Sorry, uh, visual vocabulary. Um, and how is that different from, or, or is that how's that different? How's that the same as a verbal vocabulary? Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess when I think verbal vocabulary, I think when you're learning a new language. You're trying to figure out how do I say this word in this language. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm talking about might be more analogous to for a word, and then figuring out what's your what's your verbal style. What words do you use, mm-hmm. and in what contexts? Because mm-hmm. um, it's uh, from figuring out different ways to draw. Uh, my characters to the the uh, the coloring process is new for this book. Um, I worked in black and white for the longest time, but um, this is going to be the first color edition of the book, and color has been a, a process that I've learned bit by bit over the last few years. And there are moments where I see um, the way another colorist has worked, and and that will sort of incorporate into my art style. But it's mm-hmm. also I, I'm, I'm picking up different approaches to color, so the way I approach color in one scene might be different than the way I approach it in another scene because mm-hmm. I've had more than one influence, and I can find that um, I can maybe use different, pull from different influences for different contexts. Uh huh. You know, uh, one thing I was thinking about as you were as you were just talking is that, um, and. And if this isn't a fruitful line of conversation, we we can abandon it. But um, a writer's style, vocabulary certainly, you know, word choice has something to do with it. But it's also um, has a whole lot to do with the kind of sentence structures that I am uh, that I get in the habit of using. Right? I mean, it's it's not it's not a it's not just a matter of word choice. It's a matter of of um, larger structures. Um, is there a, what is the, what's the parallel or the analogy, if there is one, with visual storytelling, 
you know, you're using the language of vocabulary. Um, mm-hmm. Is there also something more like sentence structure? I, I, I don't I don't know enough about what you do to know how to ask this question. So maybe you can uh, rescue me here. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I I don't remember where I heard this. It was on uh, a podcast or a blog or something. I was uh, uh, I heard a screenwriter describe. Uh, creating a good scene means that you have one core idea you're dealing with in the scene, and you want to resolve that idea by the end of the scene, but then open up a new question that brings, like, resolve the scene on a question that'll bring the viewer back in the next scene. Hmm. So you're not just done with the scene when it's over. You have something pulling you back. And um, I started thinking of that in terms of the scenes in my comics, and it it really improves the way that I approach something, you know, like a, a, long, a long format graphic novel, like the Dragonlord saga, because up to then I'd only dealt with, um, you know, comic strips basically, because uh-huh. uh, that's that's how I got into comics in the first place is from obsessing over Peanuts and Calvin <laughs> and Hobbes. Yeah. But uh, whenever I began thinking of scenes in that frame of mind, it affected the way that I approached comics in general because. I started thinking if 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 my scenes are like the scenes in a story, um, so like if if a scene in my comic is like a scene in your book, mm-hmm. then maybe the pages are like sentences and the panels are like words. Huh. And I started trying to apply that same that same way of thinking to page structure and to panel structure, especially page structure. Um, it's it's really affected the way that uh, I the amount of information I share on each page. Interesting. Because I'll try to not completely resolve things at the end of the page, but yeah. at least, like the last line on a page can be a question and then that'll be answered on the next page. Uh-huh. Or the last panel will set up a piece of action, like something will be about to happen and then that happens on the next page. And when you say ends with a question, you don't mean that literally necessarily. Uh, it It can possibly be. Yeah. Uh, a question. I, I feel like uh, whenever there's a core question being asked on the page, I like to leave that for uh, as the last line of dialogue on the page. But uh-huh. yeah, yeah. It, it, to okay. your point, it can it can be an implied question of what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, I since I've got you here, um, help me understand. I, I hear the the phrase visual storytelling. And I kind of know what that means. Um, it's just that I don't because that's not because that's not the way I think about story, mm-hmm. or, or I don't think about story visually the way you do. Let's put it that way. Um, what what do you? How would you summarize what visual storytelling means, and how is that different from other kinds of storytelling? Well, uh, I guess where I just cited a uh, film analogy. I, I do think mm-hmm. a lot about film whenever yeah. I'm working on comics. And working on the Dragonlord saga, I think a lot about books as mm-hmm. well. So I, I, I kind of think of um, cartooning as sort of an intersection between those two things. Uh-huh. Because I think a lot of things that um, you try to get across with um, verbal storytelling in the words you use in the sentence structure. And um, that's the kind of things that I try to get across through cinematography and through, you know, I'll use 
I'll, I'll use like uh, dark moody colors, huh, not just yeah. for nighttime scenes, but also to like set the mood for a huh. scene. Yeah. Um, or um, if you're if you're writing an action scene, your description, your sentences that describe what the scene is like are going to be short and curt, as opposed to if you're just trying to like establish, you know, along uh, establish what the scene is like like an establishing shot you might take some more time like several paragraphs of description mm-hmm. and uh, in the same way i'll if i'm trying to indicate a lot of frenetic action in some of the battle scenes in the dragon lord saga i'll have dozens of tiny panels on the page as okay. opposed to if the character is having a more reflective moment or if i'm just trying to establish a setting i might take an entire page or an entire double page uh to give the seen some space to breathe. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I am always, when I teach writing, um, I'm trying to get my students to be more visual and you know, make sure they are picturing, for instance, um, uh, how, how far people are standing apart from each other. Um, mm-hmm. To make sure they're thinking about time and space um, or thinking about what kind of expressions people are making. You know, in, in other words, it, instead of instead of thinking of a story as a series of plot points that I'm trying to get from one plot point to the next, really envisioning a scene and giving the reader what the reader needs to inhabit that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tends to start with the visual, right? I, I, I try to push them past the visual to to the extent that they can to do the other you know, four senses. Uh, I mean, visual and, and, auto, and, and auditory are kind of the low-hanging fruit. Um, they're, but they're also the sine qua non, right? That's what you've got to have if you're you, you if you are being descriptive. You've got to have the visual. So I'm always trying to get them to be more visual. As a visual storyteller, um, what are some insights that you might have to help just prose writers or poets, people who aren't using pictures? Uh, mm-hmm. To think, to think visually. What, what about your art uh, would apply to somebody who's, and would be helpful to somebody who's not a, a, a drawer? You know, honestly, a lot of it uh, comes intuitively to me, uh, mm-hmm. which is why I don't write prose <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. the the verbal thing does not come when I'm. I, I actually don't write a script, which is. I, I think it's pretty standard in the comics industry to write a script for your comic, but I, I can't work that way because huh. all of my ideas come so visually that if I write a script and then forget what I was saying in a scene and come back to it months later, I, it doesn't work the same way because I don't have those visuals down. So a lot of my scripting happens through thumbnails where I just do really rough, like stick figure sketches to uh-huh. get the idea across. Yeah. Um, I do know that that is useful, not not just to cartoonists and as storyboards and film, but that um, I, I think I've heard of writers using that method as well, just to you know at least get some concept sketches down, just to feel out a scene. Yeah. Uh, before they start working on it. Yeah. Um, the the main thing I would say though, in terms of getting visuals in your head, the best thing I have done for that is uh, again going back to the to the visual vocabulary. I think the best thing I've done for my work is to um, read more comics, look at more art, and be attentive in the way that I approach those things. 
and that you know like i said that just kind of like finds its way into my work so mm-hmm. that that work of observation i think has served me more than anything else and yeah. helping me improve the art i i'm always interested when i hear um art teachers um talk about the jumping that that divide from you know if i were to draw a tree because i'm not you know an especially good artist, I've got these kind of, basically what I would end up drawing would be a symbol for a tree. You know, there'd be the the trunk mm-hmm. and the, you know, the, it wouldn't be all that different from, from the way you learned to draw a tree when you're in kindergarten, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the art teachers, it seems like, you know, their, one of their first jobs is to is to get students past that to actually see what a tree looks like and draw what they see. Mm-hmm. Um you know, a a chair. I've I've got. You know, if I were to draw a chair, it would be this, just a, really just a diagram of a chair, um, and um, and so that's that's one thing that amazes me about um, uh, you know, actual artists is their ability to um, to really see what's there. And I'm, I'm always trying to learn from them. How you know? How do you how do you not see the the Diagram, but actually see the thing itself, and then reproduce that. And and in in writing, you know, there are so many cliches and formulas that you can fall back on. Um, that is, I think that's the equivalent of the way I draw. You know what I'm saying? Um, the hmm, the yeah. cliches and formulas for writing um, are kind of like those. You know that that cliched tree I would draw if I were to draw a tree because uh, I just don't have the ability to, to draw what's actually there. Right. Um, I mean, to, to be fair, there are a lot of, um, uh, I've seen a lot of web comics that have pretty huge followings and they're able to communicate what they're trying to communicate through really simple diagrams. Uh-huh. So if there's, yeah. that's fair. there's a difference between approaching them from a place of authenticity and then just kind of like resting on what's comfortable Hmm. Does that make sense? Almost. Um, <laughs> wait, t- tell me how you use th- those kind of diagrams from a place of authenticity. Can, can, can you say more about that? Um, you know, honestly, I've never thought about this before. I was just thinking of it whenever you're talking right now, because I've, I've seen um, a lot of... Um, th- there are a lot of comics out there that there are artists who draw in a really simple style, but mm-hmm. they're, it, it might be that, um, they're able to communicate visually, you know, where I was talking about different methods of telling stories visually. Yeah. And they're able to do that through, um, you know, a, a tree that looks like yeah. a tree or a person that looks like a stick figure. Yeah, I guess um, I, I think I, I I have a web comic in my mind, and I I don't know the name of it. I'm not trying to conceal that. I mean, uh, yeah, the, you, there's so many of those. Um, I, I know what you mean. Like the style of the of the people is almost like what a what a kindergartner would draw. Right. And and yet I, I think what's what's different about those compared to what a kindergartner draws is they manage through through the posture. So it'll be a person who's almost like a little triangle with a head and two and two uh and two legs and two arms you know uh, mm-hmm. just like a kindergartner draws and yet just the slightest little bend of that of of that character's head and back 
to express sadness or whatever. Um, right. Takes it way beyond, you know, what a kindergartner can do. So, so they're using that kindergarten Acting. style. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and so even those diagrams, even that, that diagrammatic representation, that person's moving beyond the diagram, I think, in, in expressing emotion. Um, mm-hmm. um, but it's a good reminder that I mean, in whatever the art form is, um, you can still fall back on those, um, on those, for sure. you know, whatever, cliche, even, I mean, for crying out loud, you know, the, the, that movie, um, uh, Warrior, I don't know if you've seen that movie, every, no. every sports cliche in the book, and yet, <laughs> and plus horrible plot holes and yet i cry every time i see that movie i mean what they do with those cliches is staggering to me um and the the relational dynamics they get out of it even though it's it's all somewhat predictable it's all pretty cliche i don't know how they do it i I don't know how they can sort of cobble together all these cliches and still make this movie that i just love (laughs) you know so um all right okay i i i I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. I know that you are way into board games. Yes. Um, and you're, and you're also making you're making not you're making a board game. You're making a card game, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. The um, we're doing a, a small deck of cards as a promotional item for the release of the book. And so, is it a deck of cards that has uh, a game with rules, or is it just like collector cards? It, it is a it is a game. Uh, it was the the uh, uh, Pete, the editor at Rabbit Room Press, uh, introduced the idea of doing a, a small deck of cards as a promotional item, and he kind of tossed out the idea that maybe you could put some stats on them and turn it into a game. And mm-hmm. I think he knew that once he got that in my head, it was gonna. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I would not rest until I had my card game. So, um, so you can answer either one of these questions or both. How does Play, how has the playing of board games impacted your storytelling? That's question one. Mm-hmm. Question two is working in the other direction. Um, what are some things? What are some ways that you've applied storytelling to to game design? Or mm. that you know, I haven't done a lot of. I mean, I, I realize that board games tell stories, um, but I haven't done a lot of thinking about how how that happens. You know, so. I suspect you have. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can give you a couple of examples of ways that uh, games have affected um, my storytelling and vice versa. Uh, and hopefully not get too sidetracked okay. <laughs> in nerding out about these things. <laughs> um, there, there are. I'm going to give you two examples from games that I just got into this summer. Okay. There's a game called Holding On, The Troubled Life of Billy Care. And uh, it's a game about a um, older gentleman who has had a medical emergency, and you play as a team of hospice nurses who are looking after him in his old age and trying to. The, the core dynamic of the game is trying to balance out health care with palliative care. Huh. And the the main thing you're doing is worker placement and deciding which nurses go on which shift to look after him. Yeah. But the palliative care is done through a series of decks that lead you through a story. So each each gameplay is another chapter in the story. Mm-hmm. And you're uncovering different memories from his life and helping him um, 
come to terms with uh, various regrets that he has and trying to gain his trust. And um, that dynamic of that that's a you know really serious subject matter and the more story oriented yeah um, type of gameplay has um, it, you know it, it goes back to what I was saying about I need to create stories in order to process my life uh-huh. and uh, Tolkien's Middle Earth appealed to me in a big way because it gave me a new framework for doing that and yeah. um, put me put things in a different perspective uh, the the tragedy in Middle Earth is different than the tragedy in my life. But it allows me to step outside of where I'm at and see things from in, in a different way. And um, playing the troubled life of Billy Care has um, it, it puts me in his position, thinking about um, my, you know, my coming uh, mortality. But much more than that, it puts me in the position of these hospice nurses taking care of him and is giving me a new framework for processing, um, balancing out the immediate. Uh, you know, health needs of someone with um, more in-depth relational empathy needs. Yeah, uh-huh. And it's it's a lot of questions that maybe I wouldn't have processed without that, without the story of the game. Interesting. Giving me that. Yeah. And that's, I, I could say that about, um, you know, a lot of more story-oriented games like uh, role-playing games or video games. Um, but uh, that, that game in particular got me thinking about things that I've probably wouldn't have thought about otherwise that's neat and, and uh, then, the other example yeah, go oh ahead. sorry <laughs> now you go I was ahead. just gonna say I, the, the other game that i wanted to bring up is called Keyforge, mm-hmm. uh which is there there's little to no story involved so that's not what i'm processing through the game it's a it's a deck building game where i'm drawing six cards each turn and trying to figure out what configuration to play them in in order to come out ahead of my opponent uh-huh but uh, having those, having like six new cards and trying to figure out what configuration do I put them in, uh, trying to put the pieces into place and devise a strategy and each new hand is different. I think that's helped me a lot in the process of um, editing my stories um, because I have, um, my younger brothers are my proofreaders whenever I work on a uh-huh. story. Yeah. And I have one brother in particular who's really good at eviscerating my stories <laughs> and cutting to the heart of what's broken, uh-huh. um, which which saves a lot of time because then I have to disassemble the story and put it back together. Uh-huh. And um, with uh, spending this much time playing games and trying to strategize, okay, with these six cards, what can I do? Do I play this, this turn? Do I play these three cards or discard them? Uh, it, it does kind of train my brain to... Um, when I'm editing a draft of my story, I, I do think of it more as a game because mm-hmm. there are parts of the editing process where I have to deconstruct my story and put it back together again in a new configuration and maybe take out this scene or put it later in the story or move this character from here to there. Huh. Very interesting. Okay, so anything about your experience as a storyteller that's impacted your design of this card game? Well, um, you know, I mentioned this one brother who, who cuts to the heart of what's broken in my stories. Yeah. And he also cut to the heart of what was broken about my game. <laughs> when, when I was first playtesting it with him, uh, he pointed out that the card game I had come up with was a pretty standard dungeon crawler. You find the monsters, you fight the monsters, and you take the treasure. Uh-huh. 
And he pointed out that that's not really what the Dragonlord saga is about. Huh. And then this is a game based on the Dragonlord saga. And he, he said it's about that my, my comics are about, yes, you, you're, you are fighting the monsters. You are finding the treasure. You're also uh, meeting new friends and making allies. You're discovering new lands, seeing new things. It's, uh-huh. it's, uh, it's about the journey. Huh. So I've started to restructure it. What I have right now is a game that's more about um, assembling your journey along a path, so encountering different things and um, figuring out what your path is going to look like, which which items you're going to choose to pick up, which enemies you're going to choose to face, which hmm. friends you're going to choose to ally yourself with. And um, I'm finding that my playtesters are still kind of um, processing it as a dungeon crawler, so uh-huh. I think there's a lot of room for improvement, but huh. I'm, I'm trying to push it in that direction and find the heart of, you know, find something that's true to who the characters are, what the story is, and find a way that the gameplay mechanics can reflect that. That's interesting. Okay, last question, Johnny. This is always my last question in these episodes. Who are the writers who make you want to write, or artists, or games, or whatever, that that make you want to be creative? Yeah, well, uh, and I know I only have so much time, so this is the hardest question. That's right. Because it is everyone uh, that's, uh, you know, like I was saying, I can I can always pinpoint the dozens of uh, influences that pop up throughout the story. Um, the, the, um, the ones that got me started in the first place were uh, Charles Schultz uh, and Bill Watterson mm-hmm. with their uh, Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes comics that got me started as a kid. And... Um, in recent years, I've uh, and I've um, recommended um, her books on the Rabbit Room blog before. But Lorena Alvarez has a series called Nightlights. That uh, they're they're fairly slender books. Mm-hmm. I don't go reading them a lot because there's you know they're not big thick tomes like Harry Potter. Yeah. But uh, whenever I do read them, I feel like that's I, I am thoroughly inspired to go create something cool because. Uh, she's a really innovative, um, beautiful artist, hmm. and uh, um, yeah, a, a lot of the Rabbit Room Press authors have inspired me in a big way. Um, uh, Helena Sorensen mm-hmm. and uh, Pete Peterson, their works are some of my favorites. And yeah, great. All right, well, Johnny, thank you. I am uh, really looking forward to seeing uh, these, the Dragon Lord saga come out in color, uh, book by book. So thanks for the work you do, and uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, and thank you for for doing this podcast. I love uh, hearing each new episode when it goes up. Well, good. Thanks, man. hope we can talk again soon. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song, Finch in the Pantry, as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. 
This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Thank you.